Just a little love note to all of our loyal free cookie listeners and to anyone who might be new to the show. This is an ad-free podcast. And we want to keep it that way. We want to make sure that we can just give you guys the awesome content, the great interviews. and Without the stuff that you have to fast forward. But in order to do that, we need your support. So if you could join us over at patreon.com forward slash free cookies and become a patron of the show, there are many tiers that you can join. You can throw us a dollar, you can do five. And it turns out we're going to start putting some content up for those of you who are hardcore free cookie supporters. We're going to make this worth your while. So if there's some of you out there who just listen to the show, and you feel like, hey, you know what? I could, I could spend two, three bucks a month. Great. If you guys need a little something as incentive, we're going to put some videos up on Patreon that are going to be exclusive to those of you who are free cookie monsters. And I mean, we're talking some good content. Like I'm going to take you inside my sneaker closet, like that kind of content, you know? And I will contribute recipes and perhaps every now and then our dog will give you a soliloquy. So again, that is patreon.com forward slash free cookies. Thank you. Thanks. I'm Catherine Budig. And I'm Kate Fagan. And this is Free Cookies, a humorous podcast filled with thoughtful conversations and offering delicious takeaways. And today. And on today's episode, we are joined with the amazing author, doula, meditation, wellness leader. Latham. Latham Thomas. Yes. She has so many titles. She wears so many hats. She actually wears great hats. So there you go. It's true. She wears so she many really good stylish hats. hats. But the one hat that she wears that was new to me for this conversation was the doula hat. Doula. Doula. Okay, did actually, I say I right? had to ask doula? what a doula is. Should, should we give a proper definition of yeah, what a I doula Yeah, I think we is? should because I have to imagine that a lot of our listeners would be in the Kate camp. Wow, that's me. And they would say, doula, that's something I should know, but I don't know. And then Catherine would be like, yes, I'm in the wellness world and I know it. And here's the definition. (laughs) A doula is a trained companion who is not a healthcare professional and who supports another individual through a significant health-related experience, such as childbirth, miscarriage, induced abortion or stillbirth, or non-productive experiences such as dying. So basically think of a doula as the best friend that you want through any intense experience of your life. But before that definition, I thought it was almost, I thought it was exclusive to birth. Sure. Well, and that's where you're going to hear it the most. I think okay. that the, the most natural connotations that come up when you say doula is around childbirth. Yeah. And so this conversation with Latham Thomas, we, we touch on a lot of different areas, but we do spend a good portion of it about giving birth and the messaging that you get about what it's going to be like to give birth and to have a kid and how... So much of her work is about trying to re- reframe the mind right. about what to anticipate and what to look for and what, how to approach that feeling. But it got us talking about just the concept of... As, as a married couple having who a is baby. thinking about having the babies. Well, maybe one baby would just We've be gone farther than thought about having That's true. It. We do have sperm on ice and we've talked to the people who would help us create the Take babies. that sperm off the ice and put it inside of the body. <laughs> That's exactly how it would work. We actually have a f- rental fee that we pay every month to keep sperm on sperm ice. Storage. Because one thing you learn very quickly is that if anything is related to having a baby, they will charge you 10 times what they really should be charging you for something. It's very expensive to be in a same-sex marriage if you want to produce a child, it turns out. And, and we have... 
um, oscillated. Obviously, the pandemic has kind of thrown a little kink in our attempting to get pregnant plans. But um, <laughs> and, um, but we we've never neither one of us have ever been the people who. Um, you know, nurtured baby dolls when we were little, hoping that nope. we would, you know, have babies of our own someday. We've never been the people who get like goo goo gaga around babies, but we will acknowledge a cute baby when we see a cute baby. And but I, we do so it from a distance, right? We're like that baby was cute. We we do admit it, it that has baby to is earn cute. Our respect, yeah. Um, and I also come from a mother, and I love you, mom. And I know you're not listening to the podcast because podcasts are confusing to you, but. Um, <laughs> I, I come from a mother. I have a brother and a sister as well. And she has flat out told me that she didn't want any of us, but that she's so glad she did. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and so whenever- That wasn't I, emotionally harming at all. Not at all. Um, and that's so whenever I've been worried about have you know, I'm worried that I don't have that, you know, uh, primal pull towards producing a human, you know, she was like, ah, just do it. You won't regret it. Just do it. I didn't want you guys. It turned out great. Like, that's that's funny when you were doing the whole like that primal instinct. I this is probably true of a lot of women of our general age, like late 30s. But I often think when I think, do I want a kid? I think of Marissa Tomei and my cousin Vinny. Like, mm, and I don't ever. have that, you know, and, and probably you guys know what I'm talking about. But if you don't, it's like, and she's my like biological clock is ticking like this. And um, I think, OK, that, that's that not bad. how I feel. You do it. Do it right. I would have to warm up. You got to get the to accent with the right. Yeah. Imagine your dear. Little and baby you put your little doe lips up to the cool and crisp water. And bam, a motherfucking bullet blows in your brain. And then it gets to the And then it gets to the, gets to the biological part, yeah. clock. But the point that I'm trying to <laughs> capture here is that that feeling that she's exhibiting there, which is like this, like this. The clock is ticking. And it's like, and I, and I see a baby and I want the baby I and I have to like have it. smell it. Yeah, like, oh, what's a baby smells so good. Yeah. Like, none of that happens to me. And so I... But we love our families, and we want family. Yeah, and so I think we would be excellent mothers. But but there's, like, this, like, you know when people, r religious people, when you try to, they try to explain to you why they believe something, they point to the Bible, and it's, like, this circular reasoning, mm -hmm. you know? Like, well, oh, well, in the Bible it says this, and that's why I believe the Bible. I'm like, yeah, but you can't use the Bible to explain the Bible. Religious people who abide by the Bible, you mean? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, r Christian people. Yeah. This is how I feel about having a kid, someone's, someone is always telling me, well, you, you, you won't know until you have the kid. You won't know if you want the kid until you have the kid. But if when you have the kid, you'll want the kid. And I'm like, but that is such a big thing to just kind of have and see if I want. Nobody can give me a way to assess whether I should have a kid except to have a kid. That is the truth. And that is, that is a very dangerous cliff to jump off of and not be sure you have a parachute. So uh, the first quarter of the conversation with Latham, I gotta say, I kind of felt like a little tingly after she was talking about why she became a doula, her calling and, and her child and her process and her experience. Because many people, you do hear people talk about like, it's such a, you know, the, the glow that you get and it's such a beautiful experience. But let's face the facts. There's like a lot of candy coating going on. And I just... Of the parent, the actual parenting of, job. Of what pregnancy is like and, and childbirth and everything. And well, I just, maybe not. Well, maybe, and I think, maybe we're, we're conditioned to think 
that people are candy coating it and it's actually all of these pitfalls, but maybe if we approach it being like, it's just beautiful and I'm going to connect and I'm going to have that trans, that transcendent experience, maybe that will be how it feels. True. Unless of course, like a huge percentage of people who have really bad pregnancies. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But that, is that answering? Should We're we, back at square one. Should we take the sperm off ice or should we keep it on ice? I don't know. It just seems like it's in its nice little cocktail cup. Somewhere. Maybe that's all we ever wanted was to just own sperm. <laughs> it's like, fuck the patriarchy. Oh yeah, I can own your sperm. <laughs> I got the sperm martini. Oh, that's right. That's right. Shake you it, think I need it. you? I don't. I can own that shit. <laughs> I'll just put it in a little refrigerator and then not do nothing with it. <laughs> Maybe that's all it's about for us. It's power. I'm really glad Maybe that ultimately we this is about this power. therapy session that we just worked out on air for everybody to listen to. Maybe we should bring on Lisa. Maybe, maybe we should hand it over to the professional. Latham Thomas, a.k.a. Glow Maven, is a celebrity wellness lifestyle maven and birth doula, transforming how women give birth and how they give rise to the best versions of themselves. Named one of Oprah Winfrey's Super Soul 100, an enlightened group of leaders elevating humanity through their work, Latham helps women embrace optimal wellness and spiritual growth as a pathway to empowerment. She's the founder of Mama Glow, a lifestyle brand offering inspiration, education, and holistic services for expectant and new mamas. Latham is a graduate of Columbia University and author of the book, Own Your Glow, A Soulful Guide to Luminous Living and Crowning the Queen Within. And that book, Own Your Glow, is now out in paperback. And Latham is here. Hi, Latham. How are you doing? Hey, well, how are y'all? It's so good to have you on the show. We uh, we were chatting on Instagram live a while back, which people can still see that that's up on, on my Catherine Beauty page if people want to revisit that conversation. But I wanted to start with right before, I know I'm timestamping this conversation right now, but this beautiful article just went up on Women's Health Magazine about you. Yeah. And... And obviously the content where we've got a lot of content we want to talk about, but I'm going to start with something really superficial and say, you look so hot and your outfit is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) The outfit is everything. (laughs) So anyone who likes fashion, you got to check it out. She's got this orange pleated shirt with a sports bra. It's like the union of all worlds. It's like Kate on top and me on the bottom. It's fantastic. Oh my God. I love it. (laughs) Yes. You know, it's hard with, um, with fashion for, for fitness, right? Because it's either just like really cute skin tight pants and like some sort of variation of like a bra, which I call like titty harnesses. And (laughs) it's so uncomfortable. Usually that bra that I was wearing in that was, it was like, I, I mean, my breasts were like, first of all, they're so small, but then with that thing on, I was like, help. Um, but, um, but yeah, it was a, the skirt was everything. So yeah, I loved, I loved that look too. The skirt was everything. So everybody, when you're done listening to this, go check out her article on, on women, women's health mag.com. Um, and, Latham, and on newsstands too. It's on newsstands Oh, oh, well. it's going to be in the book. Sweet. Okay. So do you know, is it the, the August issue? Um, I guess so. Something like that. Now. Magazines okay. yeah. are strange yeah. like that. I know. Magazines are weird. Um, I know. It's true. So we like we talked a couple weeks ago and there's so much more. There are a few things I want to repeat that we talked about on the IG live. But let's just let's start at the beginning. So I'm curious, like, when did you hear the calling to be a doula? 
Like, was did you always want to be a mother? Did you always have this pull towards things maternal? Or was there this aha moment for you? I love that you call it a calling because that's what I call it too. Um, it really started, I don't think when I was a child, I was thinking about being a mom, but I was definitely influenced by my mother's pregnancy, which was at the same time as my aunt and my great aunt. Okay. And so there's three women all pregnant. I was four years old. And if you can think about the height of a four-year-old, you're like, they're really at like the fundus of the, of the uterus, you know? So like, I was bumping into bellies constantly. Obviously the bellies look so huge from where my vantage point was at that height. And, um, and I was fascinated. My mother was really into anatomy and, um, really helping me understand the process. And I was very, I mean, I think people feel like children can't learn these things. I learned very, very easily anatomy. And so my mom's very proud and she always embarrasses me when she says this, but she'll say, yeah, you know, my daughter was, you know, four years old and we'd go in the grocery store and people would say, oh, there's a baby in your mother's belly. And I would say, no, there's a baby in my mother's uterus and it's going to come out of her vagina. (laughs) And she's like, yeah, sorry. (laughs) You know, but the great thing was that she was teaching me about you know, um, body literacy at an early age and the importance of understanding the function of our bodies and also the power. Right. And so, um, I didn't have this sort of view that birth was something that would be, uh, painful or unpleasurable or, or even, um, you know, challenging in the way that it is in some ways and and certainly the ways that we're fighting against. But, I did have this view that it was this magical and mystical process. And, um, and that I think was like a seed that was definitely planted early in life. I think fast forward, you know, I had a cousin too, who was like, maybe, I don't know, maybe nine months older than me. And so when we, she, it was her brother was going to be born and my sister and they're born a month apart. And so we were both fascinated and we would stuff like cabbage patch dolls Mm. under our shirts and pretend to deliver each other's babies. (laughs) So it was like, it was definitely imprinting early. And um, just like a sidebar for those who don't know what a cabbage patch doll is um, in the (sighs) 80s, right? (laughs) In the 80s, these were like the dolls of choice, right? And so we all like had these dolls, um, which you can probably find online now. But anyway, so that was like my big, you know, sort of, um, I think that that was like an aha seed planted. And then fast forward, you know, many years later, um, when I was pregnant with my son, I was recently out of college. I was young, you know, I was in these New York streets, you know, and enjoying life and, you know, met somebody, you know, got together, add water. I was pregnant, you know, <laughs> and suddenly, um, you know, it was like this, this journey, right. Of like really exploring, you know, what it means to do this away from home, because I was really clear on how I would do it if I was in California, because that's where I'm from and that's where I'm resourced, you know? And, um, so I figured there has to be a way to do what I want to do here. Right. And so I sought to explore what the options were. And, um, it was really interesting because, uh, people don't realize how blessed we are with like the internet 
and how blessed we are with like the tools that we have that are just like a fingertip swipe away. You know, when I was navigating this process, by the way, there was no smartphones 17 years ago. I know no smartphones. There was no internet in the way that we know it. Right. It was ugly and flexible, hard to use. People did not go online and they did not even check their email. Maybe like once a week, maybe like once every two weeks, because we're still opening actual letters that came in the mail that were addressed to us that were not bills. Right. And so it was like a different time. And so everything was slower. It was different. It took longer. And so for me, it was like a really slow process of like learning that was really intentional that I had to really apply all my energy to, to learn things because it wasn't at my fingertips. And so um, I explored, I found this amazing birth center and it was uh, seven blocks from where I was living. I was living on 222 West 23rd and it was on 222 West 14th. So the numbers were aligned, right? So I was like, okay, this signs. is like my spot, right? <laughs> and so we go there and it's night, it's right next door to this nightclub that I used to frequent as, you know, a young person called Nell's and it, it became the Darby and then up and down. And so everybody knows this club on 14th. So I remember I used to walk my son over there and, and I was like, Oh, you were born here. He's like, I was born in the Darby, but, um, <laughs> and he, and he's now a DJ and a producer. So I think some of that, you know, rubbed off on him, but, um, you know, this, this experience of like going in this birth center and having this empowered journey with midwives and having um, access to my files every time that I went in and they would make you weigh yourself, take your own urine and like report, you know, what was in the sample. Like all of that was just part of like when you would go in for your appointments and it was really empowering. And when I had the birth, it was, so, it was like changing. And I think that, um, you know, for me, someone who was clear that I wanted to do it in the birth center, I, I wanted sort of a, a drug-free experience. I wanted to sort of allow my body to activate its own internal pharmacy and and get me through that process, which is an altered state of consciousness, but also a meditation. And I knew that it was possible. And so um, I, I had this incredible experience with midwives. I won't tell the whole birth story here, but, you know, all of it to say that you know, at 1230 at night when my water broke, it was like also through this, like, um, this, this beautiful experience with my partner where we were listening to like gospel music and I asked God for a sign and 20 minutes later my water broke. And then like the, the, the party ensued from there <laughs> and it was beautiful. It was, my ancestors showed up in the process and what I kind of came to know later um, was basically like mystic journeying was a part of my experience. And it's something that people travel the world over to experience and people go to, to, to work with shamans and do sacred ceremony and peyote and ayahuasca, which we actually produce DMT in heightened levels of, um, in, in active labor, we get to this altered state of consciousness so easily and we easily slip into these, these states of, um, of, of bliss and of daydreaming and of, um, out of body and otherworldliness that, um, are totally activated by the limbic system, which is our emotional motor system. And we have these instances without even doing drugs. And so like, mm. it's like birth is like the ultimate trip. You know what I mean? And so I had that experience and I was like, nobody said it could be this. 
Like everybody said, oh, the yeah, pain, I've never heard that before. Girl. I'm like, I want to get pregnant, Nobody have a baby, okay? Penis. I know. <laughs> I want to go trip. And that's what I had. That's what I had. And so I was like, wait a minute. People are totally like hiding the gems that are available to us and not telling us that it could be this. It could really be this. And that's a rite of passage. And that's also like, you know, a dream and a bliss state. And, and my ancestors came, like I said. And so for me, it was like a, it was a, a portal opened, you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's what we are keeping away from people when we, you know, push them through a process that's not designed for them to, especially how our modern medical model is set up. It doesn't, it's not conducive for what our brain and our body naturally need for us to move into this altered state, you know? So there is a place um, for everything and, and modern medicine we're grateful for. And, but, but the way we have designed it has become so mechanized and it's taken, it's siphoned out all of what I'm talking about um, out of the process. And so that's, I mean, I just feel blessed that I was able to do it in this way and know what it could be so that I can stand alongside people to advocate for them so that they can get as close to what their journey should be as possible. Um, I know I didn't answer the question, but <laughs> no, you did, <laughs> no, you did and you made me want to get pregnant, which is amazing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, but so, so how did, how you learned and felt as you remember feeling when you were four and you saw the women around you pregnant and the, the, the ways you felt about what being pregnant mean, how did that shift? If it shifted at all between age four and then when you yourself got pregnant through, was there, was there an absorb? absorption of like cultural messaging about what pregnancy is, maybe fear developed during those teenage years before you got pregnant the way so many people do? Or do you remember being pretty clear about it that whole time? Yeah. I mean, I don't know that it was, it was probably like, you know, these sort of punctuated moments of, of memory or of, um, you know, even thinking about that. Cause I was certainly not thinking about pregnancy in like my teen years or at all, like, um, or twenties. But I think that, you know, when I did think about it and certainly when I became pregnant, I just had this, like, it wasn't really the pain. Like, I think that's a big thing that people think about, like, Oh my God, it's gonna be painful, but that's a mantra, right? We're like, we're told that really early and we repeat it over and over. And it becomes sort of like something that we, uh, carry as a, and, and we shouldn't even have to, but because of how our culture is set up, it's like it turns us away from our bodies. So we don't even think about well, what does even the sensation mean and what is it mm. for, right? And so, um, and also certainly we welcome pain in other in other sorts of fashions too. I mean, when it comes to beauty, we don't shirk off, you know, it's like pain, like whatever for the sake of beauty, right? So it's like, it's weird that in other areas of life and other, other sort of, um, sort of vanity related, um, processes, we don't really consider pain. I mean, like a Brazilian wax is freaking painful, you know what I'm saying? But we don't say, oh, I can't do it. We just don't do it so we can show up to the beach, you know what I mean? So it's like, there's a lot of things that we don't, that we just accept as, as part of, a, a process with this, it's like, oh no, you have to escape the pain. Right. And, and so I feel like this, you know, there is a space for, for, um, pain medication. And I'm not trying to say that people shouldn't have it, but I don't think it's the first 
line of defense. I think there's other tools that we use that we evoke and then we use that because it's there if it's needed. But I don't think it should be the first thing. It's not even appropriate for everybody. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, so I think that like, you know, uncovering sensation and, and, and connecting to our bodies is so important. And I feel like that was a message I was getting constantly. It was connecting with my body. Um, and then yoga was, was a big part of that in my teen years, moving into my twenties was, I was so deeply into the practice that that I think connected me also more into my body, which I think is really powerful for practitioners, especially folks who are practicing yoga or mindfulness techniques. Um, people who are in that, like, you know, space, I feel like have, um, or, and develop a consciousness around sensation, around what's happening in their bodies that can help them surrender and can help them soften, you know? So, um, I mean, especially people who are using the practice in a lifestyle way, not just like a fitness way. Right. Um, because it helps, it, it helps you obviously physically, but it also helps you in terms of the tools that we get, the ancient wisdom that we, that we start to, apply to our life that tells us the things that we should know even about how to navigate a pregnancy. It's like looking at nature, right? And so if you look at all the trees, if you look at all the flowers, all the blooms, like everything in nature is obedient, right? And so, and we are not. <laughs> like we just like move the, the opposite direction. It's like, oh, well, like I'm supposed to do this. My body's telling me to go to sleep, but I'm going to stay up and I'm going to do coffee and I'm going to do all these things. Like, no, just like listen and be obedient. The body is so forgiving and so um, generous if we're like obedient. And so I have become like a a student in that way. And I've been become obedient to my body so that I could listen for the sensations as signals for information so I can communicate with my body and like be, you know, in this life in, um, in a way that's. Uh, embodied. Right. And so I think those are the kinds of messages I was getting through those pivotal years. And that was the sort of the consciousness I was in to like get to a place where when I, you know, was was sort of moving to this path of pregnancy, I didn't have the fear that like I understood what pain would be like I but I wasn't afraid of it, but it was more like, OK, this is going to happen. I wonder what it's going to be like, but I didn't have a I'd have a frame for what the pain could be, right? Because my mom didn't talk about her birth being painful with my, myself or my sister at all. And so, and it's not that it wasn't, but she just didn't ever tell the story in that way. So I didn't really have that. And then watching television, you know, I was more fascinated by like how, um, like, just off everything is when you, when you pick depict birth, it's obviously it's sped so dramatic up for, every single time. It's dramatic. It's sped up. It's like, as soon as the water breaks, it's like, you're doing all these like convulsions and it's like, what? And then yelling at people and slapping people. And I'm like, what is this? It's like nothing like that. And so I think just the characterization, um, has been really like, I mean, I knew that that was also not real. Right. So I think that like, a lot of that stuff didn't seep in in the way that like it, it does in general, but also because I had like somebody there who had a powerful experience to kind of give me some sort of um, rudimentary and foundational ideas about what birth could be. And I understood 
like the pelvic anatomy, right? So that was also fascinating. So I was seeing this as like a really amazing science experiment happening through my body. So I think I was more fascinated than anything else. Like this is happening. This is going to happen. And so when things are happening, I was like, yes, this is, you know, what I mean? you're like permanently like, the four-year-old who was so I curious about this. everything. <laughs> I was like, I read about this two weeks ago and it's freaking happening. So I was psyched when stuff would happen. Um, and I think that's still like kind of the state I'm in now. Like when things are happening with clients, I'm like, yes, like, isn't this so right. cool? And, and even with the doulas and teaching them, I'm always so fascinated about like each unit when we can go into to depth around some of these processes. I always find it really fascinating. But I definitely think, I mean, I'm sure like a lot of my beliefs and stuff matured, obviously, and fleshed out. But I think it for me was just really more, um, it's always been like that, that space of fascination. And, and then on the other side of that, right, it's been this whole, a place of real like challenge in navigating a time where, you know, women are actually dying in childbirth and they shouldn't be right. So there's like this whole other realm and then there's that, right. Which is a real reality. Let's talk about the stats with that, because I know that you use your voice uh, to amplify the much needed education about black maternal mortality rates. And I mean, the stats I have written down here are that black women in the U.S. are 3.2 times more likely to die because of complications related to giving birth. And 60% of those pregnancy related deaths are preventable, which is wild. So how, how are you framing or, or reframing in the wake of the past months or months. So at time is so weird right now. Um, how are you framing these conversations about black maternal mortality? Well, I, there's a couple ways, um, that I'm thinking about this in a larger context, but number one, I would say, unfortunately, those stats are worse now. Um, black women are four to five times more likely, uh, than white women to die during childbirth or due to childbirth-related complications, like you said. Um, And in New York, that number goes up to 12 times, like 8 to 12 times. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like it it gets like it's it's really intense. It's really uh, heartbreaking, but it's also maddening, right? Like it really makes you angry to see that like we're living in a time where – this is um, that this is actually happening, like in the midst of everything else that's going on. And so for me, uh, as we, you know, watch over the past few months, you know, these uprisings that have, you know, been uh, that are connected to uh, racial injustice and seeing everyone who's showing up and and the way that um, people have connected to these stories, particularly most recently with, um, you know, Amart Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. And, and now we have Elijah McClain and all these other people. Um, you know, I think that what is really great is that folks have sort of become, um, activated, right. And they want to go out in the streets and they want to shout and, and they want to protest and, and it is making a difference. It really is. Um, and, it is also important to fight for a black life, L-I-F-E, in, in the, and not just at the end of it or when it's been lost or a near loss, but it has to be mm-hmm. that we look at the systems that are working on us before we're born. What are the systems that are like actually shaping the, the trajectory of our life before we're even born? And so during pregnancy, 
you know, when, when we have a mother who, by the way, when we look at these stats, just for context, for people who aren't aware and who might think, oh, well, maybe this is, you know, um, people who have economic difficulties or no, this is educated black women. This is black women who are upwardly mobile, financially stable. These are people who have, um, PhDs. Like this is across the gamut and it doesn't matter if you're educated or if you have money and you can look at Serena Williams as an example. Right. So that's the, that's the real scary part too, is that we know that it's, that none of these factors will help prevent the outcome. And we know that for white women, if there is uh, even high school education, and then as you go up from there, it increases your chances of surviving your birth. So, um, and we can't say that the same for black women. And so what, what ends up happening is you have someone who's pregnant. And then if you have the lived experience of chronic stress, which can show up as, um, Systemic racism can show up as economic stress, can show up as things happening in your life, like relationships, all these things that can can impact like how you're carrying out this pregnancy and how healthy you are. There can live in a food desert. You could be, you know, uh, housing insecure. You could have, um, you know, poor or no insurance. Right. Mm -hmm. And you can be in a place where you might even be in a maternity desert. Right. Where you're hours away from you know, a a provider. And so these are some of the factors that are real for people. You could also bring in COVID where we have a strained medical system that is, um, that is overworked, but also that is underprepared to meet the needs of people during this time, especially folks who might have potential complications. And we see, you know, we've seen things like um, the death of Amber Isaac, who was a Bronx woman, 26 years old, who was getting remote care, who had um, a, a preventable death that was connected to an illness that was diagnosed only a day before she had an emergency C-section where she was to deliver her son weeks early. And this would have been detectable through blood tests. Mm-hmm. Now, she hadn't been in to get any tests, any screenings for months and was getting remote care only. She was fighting for and asking for you know, um, support leading up and wasn't getting it, was being denied. And um, and so when she finally did get into the hospital, then they did this emergency C-section and, and she didn't even get to meet her son because she passed away during the surgery. And so her husband is now raising their son alone, right? I mean, he has community, we've swept in, we've come to help out. There's been a lot of folks who have come to support, but he had to bury her on his actual birthday, mm. right? And so to know that like these types of, you know, instances are preventable, to know that also this happens and it's not filmed, it's not, you know, uh, something that you would see like that would that would maybe spur the same type of outrage that you that you that 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 watching a lynching might. Right. Because it's not filmed, people don't really have this visceral connection to it in the same way. And there is. And the stories don't get told in the way that they should to make people understand the, the real urgency we're in. We're in a real crisis. And, you know, when I think about it, it's like, um, it's like, uh, endangered species, you know, you know how like the government actually puts protections around species that are endangered. 
we're like actually in a state of emergency where we would be classified as endangered, but there's no protections. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's kind of like where we're at. And, but I have been framing this also around black life, not just around like rallying at the time of death. I think that's critically important, but I'm working on the side of life and trying to prevent, you know, deaths also trying to make sure that there's success after the death, right? I mean, after, after the birth so that, you know, we have people who are bonded, that they're able to breastfeed successfully, that they're able to, you know, recover and heal and move through their lives, right? We really want people to thrive, not just to, you know, barely survive a birth, right? It should not be like, you know, war, you know, and it, and, and the way that, you know, we're putting people through these stressful situations, high stress, but also moving through systems where where we have never actually addressed, you know, the the racism that's embedded in in, in medicine and in um, in institutions that that carry and that actually sort of not only teach but have never like uncovered the coded language, the practices, the way that um, microaggressions, the, the, um, the, uh, what did I want to say? Basically like the, the neglect and Mm -hmm. the, the ways that people are treated, the way that they're, they're uh, misinformed and many times, you know, under supported um, in their care. Sometimes they don't have consistent providers. Sometimes, you know, you talk about some uh, sensation that you might be having or pain or anything symptomatic and those symptoms are not properly um, dealt with and you may be also underdiagnosed. And if you talk about pain, your pain is not even perceived as real because there's for hundreds of years reception of black women being strong and being able to tolerate pain or not even feeling um, pain. And so, and this goes back to the 1700s when um, Dr. J. Marion Sims was doing all types of medical or gynecological um, tests upon black women's bodies mm-hmm. when they were enslaved, right? And, yeah. and so a lot of the a lot of the tools that we use today, when we go in for a pap, a pap smear, like all of that research was done on unanesthetized <laughs> black women, okay, against their will. And many of them were impregnated against their will while healing from surgeries. And so mm. there's so many things that went wrong, right? And so we've never had a medical system atone for that and actually acknowledge that. We had a statue of him in Central Park up until a few years ago, which it was torn down. But but like this is the type of thing, right? That it's steeped in that. Like that's the stew. And so now we have people who are coming through these spaces that are not designed for them. Right. And where they're not, their needs may not be met. And we're and we're telling them that that's the place to go to have a birth. Right. So we have to think about, like, what are the alternatives? What are the other options? How do we set people up for experiences where they'll succeed? You know, I'm an advocate for all types of birth, whatever your choice is, whatever you feel most comfortable. But I think that our society has built systems against midwifery, has built systems against doulas. Mm-hmm. And so we don't have as many as we should to meet the needs of the people who should have, you know, the access. And so that's something that we're certainly working um, towards. And, and as we frame, it is about like, is, is about accessibility. 
It's about affordability. Mm-hmm. It's about, um, and it's also about like, you know, making sure that we look at the systems that are in place right now that make it so uh, it leads to uh, an instance like what happened to Amber Isaac. Like, what are the things that are working against her? Like, what are the barriers, right, that are working against these women? Um, we have to address that, right? Because that's going to be um, the uphill battle or the up upstream swim that she's making. And we have to make that easier. We have to, and we also have to make it equitable. Birth should be equitable. We should not be sitting up here talking about statistics like this in 2020. It's ridiculous. Um, so that's another, you know, another thing that we're really focused on is, is really like, you know, fighting for birth equity and, and making this a, a real topic of conversation when we, when we focus on, you know, the reproductive justice movement. And Latham, from your perspective, do you, I know we're talking about much of what you were talking about right there is the healthcare industry, but there's lots of intersections, right? Including the yeah. wellness industry. From from your perspective, do you feel like the wellness industry has a bigger problem with equity than than other industries? And if so, why what's your perspective of, of why that might be? I mean, I think they're all inequitable. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I think it's, I think it's across the board, right? I mean, I think you just like once you go and start to do an audit and look at like you know just look around, you're like, okay, well, I mean, in healthcare, we just know. I mean, it's it sucks here. Healthcare doesn't. It's not good here. You know, mm-hmm. like we there, where's the where's the health and where's the care? I would like to see both, right? right. Because there's, there's neither right in our system. Like it's, it's, it's not designed to actually keep people well and actually prevent people from being unhealthy. So I think that's one thing. And then you see all of the, um, all of the barriers that face people, depending on where you are economically, you know, who you are in terms of, um, you know, race and, and ethnicity, and also where you're located, you know, your financial background, like all these things are going to be factors and you're going to see where you fall in terms of, you know, access to, to tools that can help you, you know, live well. Right. And then the same thing goes with like wellness, for instance, right. Where, you know, we look and see like, who is it, who is it really, who's, who really is allowed to be well, right? Like mm. who really is given the sort of um, privilege to be well. And if you think about it, it's like, if, if I'm, you know, working like two or three jobs and I'm stressed and I have like three kids and I've been furloughed, I don't even have the privilege of a breakdown. You know what I mean? Like, I don't like, when do, when can I actually like lay on the floor and cry? or go to therapy, or like, when do I have a chance to think about that, right? Like when I'm doing, taking care of my entire family, plus my community, plus trying to find a job, plus, you know what I mean? Plus, you know, trying to apply for whatever money the government's giving out. And also, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's really hard. And so when we think about it, it's like only, you know, it, it is a privilege to be able to like, you know, access these tools. It's a privilege to be able to like take a $30 yoga class. It's a privilege to be able to, you know, um, zoom with your therapist, you know, it's a privilege, like all of these things, like we, we can take for granted, um, which don't sound expensive, but for some people, it's like a life decision to make mm-hmm. of, am I going to get groceries or am I going to take this class? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that is crazy. So I think, you know, as we think about, you know, wellness and, and how we make it more accessible and how we make sure that um, there's equity, not just in in terms of, you know, like 
pricing and things like that, it's not even just that. It's really just like also like who's teaching, who who is permitted to teach and and be able to reach people like in terms of um in, in a massive way, right? Like who do we platform, who do we reward, right? For yes. and why, right? Like certain people get like catapulted, right? And it's like, okay, you fit this frame that we're thinking about in terms of like you look the part you're the size that we want, you're the shape that we want, you're the whatever, like you, you fit all those, those, you check all those boxes. Okay, cool. And like, we'll, we'll get behind you. And then there's other people who people will never get behind or industry will never get behind who have to kind of, you know, do like dig, dig for them themselves and pave the road themselves. Right. And, um, and I think that it makes it challenging if you are trying to open a business or, or launch a product or service or whatever, and you don't have the resources and you don't have the capital to back you up. And you, and you know that like you won't be able to get any because statistically like women get no money, but then women of color get like 0.02% of that money that is given to women. So it's like literally like a crumb that everybody has to share, you know? So it's like, you know that you're not going to probably get that money. And so you're doing everything like, you know, kind of hand to mouth. Right. And I think that that's not fair either. Like we have to look around and, and see like who else is here and, you know, how can I lend a hand? How can I get out the way? How can I help, you know, um, diversify the spaces I'm in? And I think that that's such a easy way, you know, for people to, um, to show up, right. Is just to kind of just take a, just take like an inventory, um, like an audit of, of the classes you're in, the, the spaces you're, you're going, the retreats, the workshops, the lectures, the, the events, the conferences, like all of that stuff. And just look to see who's, who's being asked and, and who's lined up and, you know, I think be transparent about what people are being paid so everybody can be, you know, getting the money they should deserve, you know, that transparency and stuff is like that. So important. It's so, so key, important. right? Yes. And it's people are so afraid. Key. You led this amazing panel for well and good. Um, uh, there's a diversity problem in wellness was what it was called. Um, yeah. and Nicole Cardoza, who's been on our podcast, an amazing human being. She was on the panel as well. I highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. I, I believe it's accessible for everyone on YouTube now. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that conversation was so interesting to me because it, it, it made me think about the discussion of equity in the yoga world and, mm-hmm. and how do we, um, you know, add that layer of conversation around the origins of yoga from South Asia and, and Asia while acknowledging the diversity problems in the wellness world? I mean, I think it's a... I don't know the answer. I think think it's one of those things. Yeah. I think it's one of those things where it's like, there has to be, again, like there has to be an atonement, right? Like, you know, like I'm talking about with the medical system, there has to be like, there has to be an apology. There has to be an acknowledgement. Like there was some harm done here. Like it was well-meaning or maybe it wasn't, maybe it was sinister, you know, and in the realm that I'm talking about, it was not Mm well-meaning. And now we're working in a way that is supposed to actually help people and people are getting hurt in the process. How do we contextualize what's happening here? And also how do we talk about framing a solution and who are the people who are going to help us with the solution? Right. And so I think in the same way, there can be a conversation about like, well, you know, yeah, there's been this practice. It, it, it's it's lent so much to all of us and it's for everyone. Right. It's not like a one person thing. But then how do we how do we look at like the ways that we integrate yoga and mindfulness and other tools from other spaces 
into our um, into our lives, right? And how do we um, how do we get in right relationship with not only the practice but with the people? And how do we look at like um, you know? I think there's a difference between like appropriation and appreciation, right? Yes. Like I think you can appreciate something and practice and, and, and incorporate it into your life and fold it into your life in a way where you're not now, like, I don't like wear the effects. Like I'm Indian. I'm not like going to put on all this stuff. Right. And pretend or not even like some people really are like, um, initiated and, you know, have studied under people. Cool. I'm just not going to do that even if Mm -hmm. I was, you know? And so I think that, you know, there's a way to also say like, you know, I'm not born into this lineage. I'm part of this practice. You know, I, I appreciate it. Um, and ask yourself, does it feel okay to be doing certain things, but also ask people. Like, I think one of the great things that we can learn is like, you know, um, a, a really powerful, learning experience was, and that I think that we could use as an example of this is Colin Kaepernick when he was doing, um, the kneeling during the NFL and what he, what he started off with was sitting. Right. And there, then this, uh, this vet actually reached out to him and was like, I don't like that you're sitting through the national anthem. Like, and he basically told him like, you know, why he wasn't okay with it. And, um, and they actually connected and he talked to him about like, you know, why, why it, it, there was, there has to be another appropriate way. And he's like, you know, I stand, I understand what you're saying and I want to like, you know, align with you. Um, and I want to help you come up with a better way to do this. And so Colin was like, well, what would be the appropriate way? He said, you know, kneeling. Mm -hmm. And he said, because when fallen soldiers, you know, when there's fallen soldiers, we kneel, you know, like, and so, and there's all these imagery of the kneeling, which is like, I mean, it's a prostration, right? It's an, it's a, it's a, it's an act of, of, um, of service, uh, leadership. It's an act also of, of surrender. It's an act of, um, you know, of, of real, like, um, respect. Right. And so he started kneeling, Right. But it was like a conversation, like what would be appropriate. Right. And somebody who, again, could have just been like, you know, F him, whatever. No, it was like, no, dude, I want to teach you something. I want to share with you where I'm at and you can share with me where you're at. And it came to a place. And so I think that this is a great way. Like, that's a great example of how you can be in a dialogue with someone around like what would be appropriate here. Right. Like what would feel better here in this instance where there has been um, harm or there's been, uh, you know, there's been actions that like, or a whole real industry has been, you know, I mean, billions of dollars have been built on the back of yoga. And if you go to India where I have been and many of us have been, there are places in India where you will see, um, I mean, like poverty, like you've never seen in your life. And it's like, how are we in the West, like comfortable, like, you know, counting paper, you know, <laughs> off of the backs of people who have, whose children have nothing and it comes from their country. It's like, that's crazy to me, you know? And it's like the same thing when like you go and you mine in all these places, you know, like their, their resources, and then they become 
poor because they don't have their resources. And then we sell them here for, we repackage them and we sell them and we mark it up and then we sell it back to the people. And it's like their own stuff, you right. know, it's like, like, here's your $500 you know, mala beads made out of yeah, crystals that are, on. yeah. And so, so come like, on, we have to look at that. Right. And so I think, I think it's each of our responsibility to look at like where we fall, right. Like not yes. like, not pointing like, oh, you guys are doing this. But if you see something, it's like, oh, wow, like you can ask. Like we, like I think this was something that we all started to do when it became like when things were like um, when it became like about organic or it became about like, you know, fair trade. And like people started asking questions. It was like, well, where was this made? Or who made this? Or where was this grown? Right. Like you can even it doesn't have to be that you go and attack people, but it can be like, yo, like I, I have been supporting your company for a really long time and it's come to my attention and my awareness recently, just through everything that's going on that like, um, you know, X, Y, and Z. And I just wanted to ask like, what are your, what are the steps that you're making towards, you know, writing this? Cause I'm on this journey myself and I would love to know if I should be continuing to support you. Right. And then it's like, it's on them to say, yeah, actually we're trying to figure it out. Like I've seen, you know, people who are in this space with us, right. Who are like, Oh my God, my entire brand is built off of this. And now I got to rebrand because I was taking all these things and appropriating all these things and doesn't feel right in this moment. I think a lot of people are having that sort of reckoning. So I think if we look at it in ourselves and we model like what's possible, right. That, that we can learn, we can transform the way that we've, we've moved, you know, this whole time. And then we can start to figure out like the steps to take to, to, um, to, yeah, to, to repair. Right. Because again, that is possible. Like repair is always possible. And so, um, I think that's the work we need to do. And while we're doing it, figuring out if there are people, if there's like a pipeline directly to people, let's help, help them in the way they want to be helped. Right. Cause I think a lot of people are doing stuff like, Oh, I'm going to raise money for this. And like, ask before you start mm-hmm. doing that, like connect with the people, yo, I'm doing this yoga class or I'm doing this, whatever. I would like to know if it's possible to work with you to advance the proceeds over or what can we, or, Hey, do you need action? I mean, people might not need just money. They might need like actual volunteers or they might right. need, yeah. you know, because assumptions right, got us here in the first place. So we need to yes. stop assuming and start listening a little bit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or a lot. Yes. So, so, so yes, listening is good. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I had a couple of questions kind of backing it up to own your glow. Um, because there was one thing I Which wanted is to out in paperback. That's right. Um, yes. There's one thing I was really interested in because you you write so much about uh, in the book about like the feminine or the masculine, and I was wondering because I I've started to see when people write about those things to try to separate them in my mind from meaning like oh these this is like it's not the same thing as like girls have to wear pink and boys have to wear blue, right? When people say feminine and masculine. And I was wondering, how do you balance that universal understanding of, of the balancing of, of the world and the yin and the yang between the masculine and the feminine, but also no exhibiting like inclusivity toward non-binary folks and LGBT folks when you use that language. Yeah. I love that you brought that up because a big piece also of our work at Mama Glow is about gender inclusivity and, you know, making sure that we have inclusive language when it comes to uh, birth work and especially with um, in spaces when I'm talking about these issues that come up um, for black women, they also come up for LGBTQ folk, right, that we work with. And we see a lot of um, 
neglect. We see discrimination. We see um, bias that shows up in in these spaces along the the continuum. So um, I want to underscore that to for people to understand that it's not just one group. It's it's many marginalized groups um, that that suffer uh, as a result of what's happening. You know, one of the things I think that uh, was asked. Um, I think we did talk about this on the pod. I mean, not on the pod, but on the um, oh, live. IG live. Yeah. Yes, was um, with Catherine was about like if there was anything that you would change, right? Um, because it came out in paperback, which meant that before it was in uh, it was in uh, hardback. I know hard, I, 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 my, hardcover, hardback. I do that too. Hardcover. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> what's the word for? Yeah, like hardback, hardcover. Right. It was hardcover. And then um, and in hardcover, it was like a few years ago, like three years. Right. And so when I think about like what would I would change, that was one thing that I would change and add. Right. Would be more um, inclusivity in the language. And uh, because it's something that I'm actually really aware of now. So when I'm in conversation with people and I hear like like even when reading books around, cause we have to review stuff. And so I'm reading things I'm like, Oh my God, this is like so aggressive, this language. Right. When yeah. I look at it, sometimes I'm like, God, it's a lot. Like we get it. Like, but also how come there's not any mention of different types of family configurations and like, you know, all this kind of stuff that is so prominent now. And is so part of our, um, cultural dialogue, but also it's in the zeitgeist in a way that it wasn't years ago. Right. And so I think that that's one thing that I would have additionally added was to to bring um, the inclusivity more into the languaging. But in the concepts, I still feel, and it's not binary, it's obviously fluid in terms of concept, but because you can be in any of these phases of your life, like when we were talking about like the triple goddess, um, you can be in any phase of your life and be a man. You can be a woman. You can be like wherever, you know, on, in terms of your fluidity and, and have like the, and, and be in an archetypal phase in your life. Right. So, um, I think that what, when we look at, um, gods and the goddesses, and we have so many of them when we look at the different uh, practices globally, right, and, and different spiritual traditions globally, um, that there are unique um, characteristics, right, that we can, like, layer and also that we can kind of almost step into. Like, when I think about, like, how what I want to embody in terms of an energy, and sometimes that energy is really deeply masculine. Right. And sometimes that's really more like, you know, I'm like in this very like pink, you know, part of my life. And other times I'm like in army fatigues and like, you know, um, Jordan ones. And I don't think that that's different in terms of boy or girl a woman or a man, I just feel like it's this different energy that I want to actually evoke. And sometimes the things that we put on evoke a certain energy that makes us feel a certain way. And there's actually in the book, I talk about this, that there's a science called enclosed cognition, which is essentially the study of how clothes make us feel. Hmm. And so if I put on like this tutu and, you know, like these kitten heels and like a little thing, like I'm going to feel a certain way in that. And if I go on StockX and get like the new, you know, 
I don't know, the new Travis Scott, like Cactus Jacks. And I get like, You're speaking you know, case language now. <laughs> right. And then I get those and then I get like, you know, my little outfit that like makes me feel, you know, like more, um, you know, like my streetwear that makes me feel like, you know, in baggier clothes and more hype beast and whatever. I feel part of like, you know, a, like my son's generation. And I feel more like with the boys, mm. you know, and I love that too. And I wear both and I am in both. But I also feel some days for for me, like being raised by a woman who was so intermasculine in terms of the the uh, the way that she evoked energy, the way that she showed up, the way that she also had to like really like fend for us, you know, like it was like this balance between, you know, like a mother lion, like a lioness and also like um like a warrior, you know, and, and just this energy that she embodied, which I realize in my life, I don't have to, like, I realize I could be in this softer energy. And, and to me, those are just about, um, energies that are either, um, dominant or submissive and, and not submissive, meaning that, um, like, uh, not strong, but meaning like fluid, you know, and dominant meaning like, basically holding the space right and mm-hmm. and the energy rising to that that can be any any like you know any embodiment whether that's a male or a female or someone who doesn't identify as either or who sometimes identifies as one or maybe not the other or they you know it's like that can be anything like any any person or any um, energy can move into that space of being dominant and it's not masculine or feminine. But what I'm talking about really in the book is about, uh, appreciating, lifting and stepping into an energy that is not honored in our culture, that is not celebrated, that is not platformed, that is not, um, you know, uh, centered. And that is, uh, an energy that is about not hustling, not pushing people out the way, not being destructive, which is what we, uh, um, which, which is what we sort of connect. Like if you look at who's running our country right now, it's men, right? If you look at who's running mm-hmm. the world right now, it's men and it's these older white men. And, and the energy is not, um, an energy that like is, is sort of, I would say, um, you know, centered is not, um, the energy of people who are, about surrender, about like, you know, being in a space and holding the energy and really actually holding the universe by your fingertips. Nobody is looking at us that are doing that, right? They are looking to the people who are out in the world who are actually destroying it. And so what Mm -hmm. I am asking, and if you look at what we were doing before COVID, by the way, um, long work hours, 10, 15 hours a day working, traveling on a commute two hours or whatever in your car, traveling on the subway under somebody's stinky armpits for like 40 minutes to get to your destination. <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? And then spending all this time away from your family, never seeing your kids, staying up late doing homework, not going outside, not enjoying the sunshine, not hearing the birds, polluting the freaking earth, driving, Ubering, like all this stuff, right? Um, staying out too late, having too many invitations to go to too many places, to waste too much energy. 
it was actually destructive. But that is what we value in our culture. We destroy people. We force them into these male work patterns and and these patterns of dominance that um, that are connected to, by the way, this kind of like um, this kind of I would say, yeah, like it's a it's a it's a destructive construct that we have decided to all buy into. Right. Yeah. And none of it serves who we are and in ha- our nature. And so that is what I'm asking us to do is the opposite. It's like actually slow down, actually stop hustling, actually, you know, like look into yourself and ask yourself, what do I need today? What do I need in this moment? And that is actually revolutionary because that's actually femme energy is, and that is about caring for yourself, whether you, whether wherever you identify that is a maternal energy that is designed to actually put yourself first and actually tend to yourself if you have a mother who is there amazing but guess what eventually we grow up and we have to look after ourselves and so the invitation is for us to look and see like where do we have the nurturing qualities that we can bring out where do we have this, this energy that is softer, that we have actually shut out of our personality, that we've actually sidelined, you know, to the stage, you know, like we haven't let this part of ourselves out onto the stage of our life because it doesn't serve us because of the world we live in. And so how do we actually make space for that thing? And, and especially the qualities that we have not been able to celebrate in the context of the world that we live in, which maybe now is a little bit better. Maybe now it's a little bit safer to be ourselves, right, for some of us. So so that is the invitation. So it is like looking at these qualities and seeing, like, where do I fit? You know, what is it that I've tucked away? What is it that I need to release? What do I need to platform? What do I need to allow to, like, you know, um, swing from the chandeliers? Yeah. Like, what part of myself wants to do that? And and I think that when we when we can lean into the energy of it, and think about like, you know, how we've contextualized, you know, these aspects of, of who we are, we'll see that we fit in both. Because when I look at like lists of, I'm, I'm all of those energies, right? But some of them I want to dial up and some of them I want to dial down. Sometimes you just got to get, moments. you got to wear the Travis Scott's, you know? Or sometimes yes, you need the pleated skirt you, with a sports bra on top, like we started you, the conversation, exactly, right? <laughs> exactly. Sometimes you got to be, and so you got to know when to do, when to, when to be in that energy, but also how to be, how to be embodied when you're in that energy, right? So I don't want to feel like I'm pretending. Like when I put on whatever I put on, I don't like feel like I'm pretending to be someone else. I'm being yes. myself in these clothes, right? And the concept and of so the invitation. I love your your concept of this this invitation to be the yin and the yang, to be the dualities, yeah. to to yeah. find who we are at the point. But which leads us to the most important question that we are going to ask you, Latham. <laughs> if you were Ooh. to get an invitation in the mail right now, like you know, back in the day Ooh. before email, well, like we talked about earlier, and right. you had to RSVP, you had two options. You had the okay. option to RSVP for a chocolate chip cookie or <laughs> to RSVP for an oatmeal raisin cookie. Which box would you check? Oh, <clears throat> um, well, <laughs> I like that at least it's taking a little while because you know why? Because here's the thing. <laughs> um, raisins are in the way, but, <laughs> but the oatmeal like, is so like- good. But the oatmeal's good. There's the quote. Raisins are in the way. <laughs> They're in the That's way. That's the pull quote. That's Kate's favorite. We we always Raisins end our podcast with this. Wait, so does that mean you're you're picking the chocolate chip cookie? I think I'm going to pick the chocolate chip cookie. <laughs> okay. okay. I think so. But if I promised the- you it was really light on the raisins, you might consider the oatmeal raisin. 
I would consider it, but you know what? The the chocolate, you know what's selling me on chocolate chips is the fact that you know how when you cook There's them no and like <laughs> the yes, yes, but also on the on the edges, you know how it can get like oh, toasty on the edges. Yes. Oh. Yes. Yes. That's what I'm talking about. All right. Well, that's what we're going to enjoy next time we see it together is some crispy on the edge and gooey on the inside chocolate chip cookies. Crispy and then, on the and edge. Kate can just sit there with all those raisins in the way and love them and have yes. her own little thing over there. <laughs> like them. have a pile of them. Thank you so much for coming onto the show and talking with us. And everybody check out Own Your Glow, which is out in paperback now. And also Mama Glow, which was the OG book that came out. And um, you were just such a fountain of knowledge, and thank you for sharing it. And and uh, I, we just, you're just yeah. very special. Well, thank, thank you so you. much. Oh my god, I love y'all. Thanks for letting me just like rant. We love it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we will talk to you soon. Thank you. Sounds good. So much love, ladies. Bye. Bye. Bye, my love. And that's my friends is a wrap. That is a wrap. And Free Cookies Podcast is produced by Lindsay Collins of FNB Radio. You can check out her amazing stand-up work that she's starting to post about. Or if you just want to slobber all over your phone screen, you can follow her Instagram as well. And it's skits. It's not stand-up, although I also want to see her stand-up performances. It's stand-up skitties, skittles. It's situational comedy of the skit variety. And the reason that we are just blabbing right now is because... Sad, sad, sad news. This is normally where we share the people who have reviewed and given us five stars on or four. Apple Podcast. Four is acceptable. Five is, you know, better, better, better. We don't have any to share, you guys. And you guys, it's not fair. It's okay. It's all right. I mean, what? What? Just, how? We're just sitting here talking all the words. How just, are? How are we supposed to put like that? Thinking all beautiful the ideas. Bow on this show when we. We don't have I don't have a any review. interesting podcast names that I can butcher. No, it's just it, it, it's just leaving me empty. We we wrote out like an ending to the show and it was like it was really crisp and clear, but now we don't have that final anchoring piece. So somebody has to remedy that. So we're just gonna go make a little fresh sperm cocktail and kick our feet up. And and, uh, and break the patriarchy. Try not to get pregnant drinking this cocktail. That's not, can that happen?